From the grassroots media team at Weave News, this is Interweave It. This is Nicole Rocher with Weave News, interviewing author Pedro Ponce about his forthcoming collection, The Devil and the Dairy Princess, which was named the winner of the 2020 Don Belton Fiction Prize. The collection will be published by Indiana University Press this October. Hi there, Pedro. Hi, Nicole. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today, and congratulations on your award and publication. It's so well-deserved. Thank you. Ponce is also the author of Stories After Goya, Alien Autopsy, and Superstitions of Apartment Life. His fiction has appeared in Plowshares, Alaska Quarterly Review, Gigantic, Pank, Copper Nickel, and more, and his work has been featured in the anthologies New Micro, Exceptionally Short Fiction, and Boundaries Without, the Calumet Edition's 2017 anthology of speculative fiction. Ponce was a 2012 National Endowment for the Arts Fellow in Creative Writing. He's Associate Professor of English at St. Lawrence University in Canton, New York, where he teaches fiction writing and literary theory. Writer and prize judge Charles Yu says, I found The Devil and the Dairy Princess to be strikingly original. Each piece is distinctive, innovative, and full of fresh surprises. If the collection as a whole is cohesive in tone and voice, evocative, playful, haunting spaces both dreamy and nightmarish. I wanted to start by reading that because I think Yu so succinctly captures so many of the qualities of this collection. I know these pieces were written and originally published at different points over recent years. Is that right? That's right. Yet, as you points out, they feel so cohesive. Could you speak a bit about the process of putting this collection together, how it took form for you? These stories were written over a one-year period between 2008 and 2009. So I think they were written around the same time. I was definitely under a certain literary influences at, at the time. I, I had just begun reading the work of Roberto Bolaño in translation. I review books, and so I'd written a review of Bolaño's Nazi literature in the Americas in 2008 for the Review of Contemporary Fiction. And I read the book. It was just one other thing to do. And I went to a writing retreat in Costa Rica, the white colony in uh, uh, down in uh, Ciudad Colón. And when I got down there, I started writing the bulk of the stories there. And for some reason, you know, something happened with my writing, like my sentences were getting longer. There was all this complexity to it that I really hadn't encountered before, but I just kind of went with it. And it wasn't until later that I came back from that retreat and I was looking at Bolaño again and I was like, this is where it came from. So Nazi literature in particular, but Bolaño really got under my skin in a lot of ways. And also, I'm kind of bilingual, but not really. So being away and writing and hearing Spanish all the time and trying to speak it on an everyday basis, I think it probably did something. But the biggest influence is probably Bolaño's work and kind of the way that he interrogates reality. Like, I'm still trying to figure out why Bolaño is so haunting to me, because we're very different writers in some ways, but I was very fascinated by his work. And he really opened up the way I hear sentences. And that kind of just started it all. Um, so that was kind of a starting point. This was also sort of 
um, the remains of a failed story cycle. Hmm. So um, in the original conception, I, I, I very much appreciate Charles Yu's comments, but this was a failed story cycle because in the original, it was all going to be narrated by the same person. And there were going to be these episodes between the larger stories mm. where there would be kind of commentary or kind of, I don't know, juxtaposition of it. But eventually that overall narrator dropped out and it left the stories on their own. And so these stories were always kind of a unit, but um, they, they didn't end up working the way I thought they would. Wow, I'm glad you mentioned Bolaño because I was wondering if he was one of your influences and I was sort of coming up with this short list of, of various authors that I thought might have been influences and I definitely thought of his you know, fake encyclopedia and I was reading The Well at Founders Grove that has all those fake bibliographic entries yeah. throughout in the footnotes. And also the what you said about there originally being one narrator also makes a lot of sense to me and I definitely want to get more into the, the narration of the stories here in a bit. You mentioned that your sentences started getting longer after reading Bolaño. And I know you, you normally do publish a lot of short fiction and that you do also write flash fiction. Yeah. Could you speak to what it is that you like about shorter fiction, what it allows you to do or say, that form? When it works, I think flash fiction in particular it gets you to scrutinize a moment and really dig deeply into it. Like I have a problem with the designation. I, I don't know what to call it. My problem with calling it flash fiction is that it suggests that it's done in a flash and that that's how long, but actually it's, it's the reverse. It's actually the shorter it is, the more impact it should have. So the really short fiction should get you to reread it again and every time finding something new in it and that's really what I what I go for when I try to write flash fiction it gets you to look at things even more closely and kind of scrutinize your perspective your sense of reality well and these pieces are definitely a bit longer than that of course sometimes quite a bit longer but you can still see, you know, those skills you've developed by writing so much flash, you know, just how dense the scenes are and, and the economy of the word choice and just how, you know, saturated a sentence can be. I had one other question about shorter fiction. I'm wondering if there's anything about the content or themes you like to explore or tend to explore that the shorter form sort of lends itself to. One thing that comes to mind is just looking at one moment from multiple angles and just being there there's something about being able to uh take a moment and cut into it and experience it from like all angles not just like from three dimensions but even from like four dimensions of time so you can actually like look at something and then think about how the past affects it and then what might happen in the future and you can just really look at something and think about something from multiple places. And I've been working on and off on a novel, which is something I'm entirely new to. But there's something about the spaciousness of a novel. There are some great short novels that really work well that you can kind of see these moments in sequence. But there's something about the expansiveness of the novel that's different from what I'm going for. In shorter work, it's that concentration, it's that density, which um, I, I appreciate you raising that. Certainly, people aren't really fans of density. Um, 
given the, the long publication history of some of these stories, but there is something about the density, the concentration of short fiction that I like a, a lot. And it's like these episodes that you kind of relive and can kind of experience again in this really concentrated form. That's really interesting. So many of your stories dance that line, as you mentioned, you know, between realism, magical realism, sometimes just outright absurdity, which feels right in stories that explore often, you know, dystopian worlds or situations rife with, you know, bureaucratic nonsense. One example that jumps out at me is the progressive ideation project in the, the presentation story where the out-of-work actors perform construction for the good of the city. I mean, I just I absolutely love that. You have a knack of making the familiar unfamiliar and uncanny and therefore very unsettling, but you're also very funny, often in a wry, sort of, you know, darkly funny way, which is personally my favorite form of humor. Could you speak to your interest in that tone? I know you teach some Kafka, definitely saw some of that in there. You know, have yeah. you always incorporated elements of, of dark humor in your work? Yeah, I think so. A lot of my work is voice-driven. Um, for me, my first uh, writing teacher was Amy Hempel at the uh, New York State Writers Institute at Skidmore many, many years ago. Wow. And she talked about the integrity of the sentence and basically how all stories for her begin with, you know, the sentences have to be strong. And so... For me, when I am imagining or getting into a story, um, oftentimes it's really about the voice. And my voice tends to be, when I'm writing anyway, it tends to be more in that kind of wry, kind of sardonic uh, mm -hmm. tone. In some ways, I think that it's a, it's a way to create distance from things, that it's a way to frame things that are not particularly great to think about, you know, as far as the, the presentation is concerned. I don't know exactly where that story comes from. It's such a very different kind of story um, mm -hmm. that I've written, than, that I've written. but I think that a lot of that is about kind of the anxiety. It's kind of like my, I wouldn't call it a midlife crisis because I've already had all of my midlife crises multiple times before um, before this. But it was more just kind of like having a moment where it's like, what are, what am I doing with everything? And, you know, the, the protagonist in that story is kind of caught between this kind of early career and the possibility of advancing in a career that doesn't seem particularly fulfilling. And so it was a way for me to kind of dramatize that in a way that's at first really kind of humorous. But then it kind of becomes much more existential the further, you know, he goes into it. And it's kind mm. of like, you know, the line between who is the performer and who is the actual person becomes blurrier and blurrier. And so, you know, he, he kind of falls into the cracks of that uh, distinction. I think also it's it's kind of like I'm a big fan of misdirection as well. So mm. I, I like sort of settling people into something they think they know what's going on. And then just by the end of it, they're like, what's going on? Misdirection is a great word for it. I felt, as I said, sort of, well, maybe not uneasy, but definitely, where am I in this story? And that's part of it, right? You're looking for that, where's that moment where you're settling into a story and, okay, I know what the story is about. And then it switches on you. And I, I think that really keeps your interest and keeps you guessing, and at least for me as a reader. I'm going to switch gears a little bit here. I was definitely drawn to this description I've read, what happens when the stories we've been told fail us in this new collection 
Ponce grapples with the human instinct to create a narrative out of disparate experiences. And it goes on to talk about how the stories interrogate the power of stories to impact us for good or ill. And I was wondering if you could talk more about that. Why was this an important theme for you? Was it something you were intentionally exploring, again, in stories written over many years? Or is it, was it more of a pattern you saw emerging in the finished works? I think it was a combination of both. I, one of the reasons why, I mean, I'm like I said earlier, I'm uh, very much voice and language driven. So it felt very natural to call the collection The Devil and the Dairy Princess because it's a striking title. But then when I thought more about it, and especially what happens in that story, it's really about stories that kind of fall apart. And that was when I suddenly saw, it's like this group of stories seem to be all about stories that kind of fall apart. And it goes beyond that. It goes beyond that. It's sort of um, because you would think everybody talks about how we have to get away from the larger narratives and we have to sort of interrogate the old narratives. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that's that's good. But I think that people think that getting away from the old narratives is easier than than it is. And so I really wanted to explore the difficulty of walking away from older narratives, whether those narratives are personal or whether they are national or historical. It's it's really hard to get away from them because narratives help us make sense of things. And so there's a liberation, but I, I definitely wanted that liberation to be complicated because once you leave that narrative, what is it that you're left with? So in some cases, we have a situation where people are like, okay, well, maybe this is the beginning of something new that we can experience, and we're finally opened our eyes to something beyond it. But I also wanted to dramatize the fear and anxiety that comes from letting those narratives go or seeing beyond it. And certainly, you know, I mean, like I said, I, I wrote these stories a while ago. But I, I don't know how to feel about it, but I feel that these stories connect in some ways with what we're going through now on many levels. A lot of the anxiety that I see out in the culture is really about letting old stories go or the threat of letting old stories go. And mm -hmm. you do that and it's like some people don't want to let go of those old stories. They don't want to they don't want to let go of the way that they have shaped their experiences and they'll do whatever they want. And I think the collection covers both sides of that in a way that it's gratifying. It's not gratifying how relevant it is, um, but it is gratifying that there is something true, even with all of the, you know, misdirection that, that you're talking about, that there's something very truthful that kind of emerges from that ambivalence. Absolutely. And reading the description, hearing you talk now, really thinking about storytelling and its connection to power. We hear this, you know, who's telling the story, who's allowed to tell the story, who has access to the information. And that was something that I found really fascinating reading these stories, thinking about why this narrator or, for instance, in the story about Dr. James Osborne Beckett and how he's meeting with this unrequited, you know, college love and then while he's there, he has this discovery, you know, as she's rejecting him. And then we're off hearing the story, and all of a sudden we're getting this plural third-person narrator, you know, that kind of jumps in. It's like, okay, we felt that omniscience in the story, but it wasn't exactly clear where it was coming from and, and who had the authority. I mean, I just found that story, that was a, 
an example of misdirection I felt that was so fascinating because it was just like, what is going on here? You know, and then all of a sudden I'm in this bathroom with this couple, you know, and to give it all away, but it's just, and, you know, the fact that the only people who know that this Dr. Beckett was not a total loser, that he actually did have this discovery, aren't telling anyone. So it begs the question, how does the narrator know about it? And then in a funny way, it makes us complicit because we now have access to this information that ostensibly, you know, no one or very few people know. Was that something you were consciously thinking about the reader's role in that as you're sort of you, you know, you, your narrator are divulging these, these facts, this information. I think so. And I think the other side of it too, going back to what you were saying earlier about voice and narration, I'm also kind of, it's an unreliable omniscience, which is impossible, (laughs) but I kind of like it. I mean, I like, because the, the, the playfulness of it, I think it's really intended to kind of make you question what omniscience is. And so I like creating these voices that seem to have a lot of authority. And then eventually, you know, the sort of authority breaks down around them. So Mm -hmm. you're being taken on this journey or experience, but then the the guide, the person that's supposed to know Mm -hmm. where things are in the story world, I appreciate your comments because you're the implied reader I've been looking for. (laughs) Um, and it's really about, uh, you know, and this, this is not, this is not something new. A lot of my favorite authors do this all the time where they play with omniscience, although they, they do it in a very different way. Toni Morrison is a great example of that. Mm. Obviously, one of the things I find fascinating about her work is the way that she plays with omniscience, which is not surprising because she's, she wants to kind of open the historical narrative up to these voices and perspectives that have been erased. But she does that by kind of producing these omniscient narratives, but also interrogating what omniscience is. And she's, you know, she's doing it at a very high level. But I'm very fascinated by that, about this this disjuncture of the disconnect between omniscience and access and Mm -hmm. sort of, and gets you asking, like, because we, we hear these voices in our speaking narratives, you know, in the culture or creating these narratives. But we sort of take that authority for granted. And so I I think that in a lot of these stories, that kind of false omniscience or unreliable omniscience is really getting the reader to think about where is the story coming from? And what am I getting? And what am I missing? I hadn't thought of unreliable omniscience as as a term, but that's absolutely what's going on. And there's this feeling, too, of not only withholding, but also, yes, there are gaps in the record. And that's something that you definitely do here. You'll say, you know, the name is lost to the record. You know, it's like, what record? Yeah. How do you know that? You know, how did you come by this information? You're listening to Interweaving, a podcast of conversation and context from Weave News. Contributions from readers and listeners play a central role in helping us continue and expand our grassroots media-making efforts. If you'd like to support our work, just visit weavenews.org slash donate. Now, back to the show. And I think reading that, I was really, that was in the, the Devil and the Dairy Princess, as you know, and it really got me thinking about, you know, again, going back to authority, truth, knowledge, you know, assumed knowledge, and I, I really started thinking about, especially with that, you know, titular story, you know, the the sort of like collective 
uh, wisdom of small towns, you know, and the the information and misinformation that travels and, and just becomes known, right? It's just this shared pool of knowledge. And I was wondering if you could talk about that. I know you've lived here in the the north country of northern New York, very, you know, rural, sort of like post-industrial place, um, remote, cold, all the things. Uh, beautiful. Uh, yes. <laughs> but, you know, wondering the influence on, you know, we have our Dairy Princess competition here. Right. Just wondering how that story came to be and maybe the role, you, you know, that information and misinformation plays in the collective understanding of a place. Well, fun fact, I started writing that story, I think, in 2009, and I think I actually started it the weekend of that Dairy Princess parade. <laughs> it was actually the first Dairy Princess uh, festival I attended, I think. I'd never been to one before. But also another disclaimer, uh, Devil and the Dairy Princess, I mean, readers can react, obviously, however they want. It's not intended as a slight to the dairy industry. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's not. Um, I have to be aware of my audience. But I mean, it is a metaphor. And I think, at least reflecting back on the process of writing it, I think what I was really responding to was the way any community has narratives that are built around it or how narrative works within a community and how that kind of shapes a sense of identity and this kind of communal identity. And I'm really interested also in the fact that how how complicated communities really are, because communities depend on their identity. They For their identity, they depend on a sense of enclosure and intimacy, but they don't really think about the fact that in order for there to be an inside, you need to have an outside and what happens when the boundary between those two things starts to blur and warp. And so that's something that's always fascinated me. Um, I grew up in San Diego, so I'm certainly new to, well, not new, I've been here for a while, but um, I have not always lived in a rural community, but I definitely have thought about how communities work in multiple co different contexts. And so I'm really interested in the way that communities construct and defend their identities and sort of maintain mm -hmm. their identities. And a lot of that is based on the stories that they tell about each other. And I wanted to create, I mean, without giving too much away, I wanted to create a situation where that communal kind of narrative becomes vulnerable and open to question. And the Dairy Princess stuff was more of a metaphor. It was just kind of, you know, something that was in front of me at the time. But eventually, it sort of evolved and, and became part of this larger thinking about narratives, but not at the personal level, but more of the um, communal level and also the national level. I mean, there's the moment in uh, The Devil and the Dairy Princess where they're going off into the woods and somebody says, um, you know, we need to pray for the nation. And, right. you know, and so I was thinking about that. And there's some resonance there, too, with like um, national discourses of, you know, patriotism and, you know, um, American life um, specifically within this larger community. Reading The Devil and the Dairy Princess, the story, um, I definitely couldn't help but think about Shirley Jackson and the lottery. She also, I find very darkly funny and lived 
in Vermont, you know, not too far from here in, you know, rural setting and all of that. And I thought it was so interesting because I noticed last year the New Yorker who originally published Lottery, the story, republished it. And I thought, what an interesting time to republish that. And just thinking about your collection and when it's coming out, the stories themselves have been around for a while, even, you know, submitting to the contest, winning, you know, before it's published, just kind of thinking about what your feeling is about the time that this collection is coming out and and sort of how it's relating to, you know, our current COVID-weary world. You can go there or not, you know, our current political landscape. Mm -hmm. How do you see this this collection sort of emerging at this time and place? There are a couple of ways to answer it. I was a member of a writer's group many years ago here in the in the North Country, and we would workshop our stories. And I submitted a draft of The Devil and the Dairy Princess to the workshop, and it didn't go well. Um, one of the comments that I got back, and this, this, this had to have been 2010, so this is 2011, so let's say it was like 10 years ago. So one of the comments I got on the story was, why do you have to write it in this style? Why can't you just relax and tell the story? And so my response, I was just thinking about the comments and it's like, well, you know, you can say whatever you want. But one of my responses at the time was if if I could relax, I wouldn't be telling you the story. I would be doing anything but writing the story because I don't write stories to chill. For whatever reason, in 2020, I have to admit that, you know, I was teaching online and just dealing with a lot of, you know, as everyone was, you know, just yeah. dealing with this new reality. And I started looking at these stories and I was like, it was a finalist at a few places and, and I hadn't looked at it in a while. And I was looking at the stories again last year and I was like, you know, some of this kind of holds up. Maybe I should send it out again. And then I have to admit, part of me was like, if this book is going to come out, I think people might be ready now. And I don't mean to sound glib or, or, or dismissive of anyone's anxiety or, or anything. It's just that these stories, they require a kind of attention and they require for better or for worse. I think you have to be in a certain frame of mind to think about the world as these stories are asking you to. And I think that now might make sense for that. You know, being in a situation where things that uh, you do every day become dangerous and where you kind of know how things work, but not really, and your knowledge is evolving, you know, so you think your sense of story is evolving. So you're actually thinking about things not at this microbial level Mm -hmm. where you're constantly kind of thinking about what did I touch? And, you know, am I clean? And this is the early, you know, this is this is pre, pre-vaccine. So certainly speaking for myself, I've always had a measure of anxiety in me, even before COVID. And so, yeah, part of me thought, well, if if people weren't ready for these stories in 2010, maybe they're ready for them now. And, and that was kind of my thinking. But honestly, my thinking when I sent it out, I was like, this is the last time I'm going to send it out. After this, when I when it because it's already collected its, its share of rejections, I said to myself, I'm going to send it out one more time. And once it makes its rounds, I will put it in a drawer and it'll be it'll be done. That's it. I'm, I'm done. I'm going to move on to other things. But that didn't work out, so. Our absurd world caught up with you. 
I guess so. I guess so. And yeah, I mean, it's it's weird. It's weird thinking that way because I didn't intend to do this. I didn't. I had no intention of like writing. I, I was having a, a conversation with someone about this because, and about sending it out last year. I was talking with someone, and they were saying, "Well, what are you? What are you doing? How are you passing the time in the pandemic?" And I said, "Well, I'm sending out a collection of stories." <laughs> And I felt really like, what am I doing? You know, it's because like, it was one of those things. It's like, what am I doing? Like, the world is seems to be falling mm-hmm. apart, and this is what I'm focusing on. But then I was like, you know what? Even people in dystopia need to be distracted sometimes. And so, yeah, if if I can give you a little bit of a break from worrying, or I, I want you to worry about something fictional instead of worrying about something real. And if that is how you would like to spend some time in this new world, hey, great. I, I, I'll, I'll take it. So. Earlier you were talking about sort of your ideal reader and ultimately what is the experience you would like your reader to have or your ideal reader to have with this collection of stories? I would just like them to look at the world differently. But it's hard. I have to be careful here because that's the thing about stories and how addictive they can be. Like, I would usually answer a question like this, again, 10 years ago, and sort of say, I want their perception of reality to be altered. I want them to think about and question things like... The next time they hear a voice of authority, you know, I want them to question and interrogate it and maybe um, satirize it. Or I want them to think about how stories make us and stories unmake us. And I still kind of feel that way. But at the same time, I also know that the breakdown of narrative can not be good, you know? So let's... I don't know. Uh, let's say, oh, how about scientific narratives, for instance? You know, um, and again, I defer to my colleagues in the sciences because that, to call science a narrative in and of itself is problematic. But like, when you start to interrogate narratives so much that any narrative is plausible or open, um, that's a problem, and it's hard being a fiction writer right now because. I feel sometimes like I'm enabling this mess. I'm not saying that I'm like abandoning it. I think about these things sometimes where imagination is a, I, I still think imagination is great, but sometimes when I look at reality, I'm like, imagination is terrible. Imagination is awful. We should just stop imagining. We should just kill imagination. Just not make up stories anymore, please. Called hard logic only. Yeah, these are the stories that, this is the kind of thing that I want to write. I wrote these stories because this, you know, people say that you write the book that isn't there. And so I yeah, wanted yeah. to write the kind of book that I would want to read. Mm-hmm. And I stand by it. But then at the same time, it's just like, imagination's not looking good these days. <laughs> And I worry about that. I, and I also worry, too, about the, the backlash of imagination as well, which is that because we are in this environment of fakeness or whatever you want to call it, that there's going to be a backlash against fiction and that it's going to be all about we do have to use cold logical reason. We do have to back things up. And 
And I'm not crazy about what this is going to do to imagination. I'm not going to pretend to have any answers. I think it was John Gardner who talked about how the only obligation of the fiction writer is to dramatize the question, but not the mm -hmm. answer. And I kind of agree with that. It's just a weird world. Like, I don't know. I, I don't know. You know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know whether I'm helping or enabling or what, you know, so. And then who does have the answer and how do we get there? Yeah. Well, Pedro, thank you so much for sitting here with me today and talking about this amazing collection. Sure. Thank you, Nicole. Is there anything else you want to add? The book supposedly is out October 5th. We'll see what happens next. <laughs> so exciting. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Interweaving is a production of Weave News, weaving the world together, one underreported story at a time. Our engineer is Terry Dubray, and our theme music is provided by Bee Children. For more exciting grassroots media content, find us online at weavenews.org or on social media at Weave News. There you can find out how you can support or join us in our work. Thanks for listening and join us next time for another episode of Interweaver.